please turn in your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Pastor Smith mentioned, I'm going to address the subject of of death today, and this is a good text for us when we think of that subject. It's Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 4. Solomon writes, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Amen. Well, let's look to God once again in prayer and ask for his blessing on the preaching of the word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word addresses all of the most important subjects that we need to know about tells us about you, tells us about ourselves and our sin, tells us about the great salvation that you have worked through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it tells us about this important subject of death. Open our eyes to understand some of the things your Word teaches about this subject, especially since you have brought it so clearly and acutely into our minds today, and we ask for the light of your Holy Spirit through the Word. In Jesus Christ, your Son's name, amen. Well, virtually everyone in our country, and really in most of the world, has been living under the cloud of COVID-19 for the past two or more months. And since the beginning of this crisis, death had not taken any of our church members until this past Friday when our brother Gary Simmons passed away. But his death was not due to the coronavirus. Gary's health had been failing, as most of you know, for many months. Then also on Friday, Doug and Lisa Cunningham were notified of the death of their youngest son, Charles, out in Colorado. To our knowledge, he did not have COVID-19 either. Additionally, the grandmother of Melissa Honeywell, one of our members, passed away earlier this week, as we heard in our prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And Mrs. Sutherland had gone through a battle with coronavirus. The two men that died on Friday, Gary and Charles, were very different. One was old, the other young. 
One was a Christian, the other not. One was brought up in a non-Christian home and sought the Lord in his adulthood and became a long-time member of this congregation. The other was brought up in this congregation and turned away from God and his word. Since it is God who made us all, and since he holds our lives in his hand, it is most fitting that at such a solemn time as this, we listen to what his word has to teach us about life and death and the world to come. The text that I have chosen this morning and that I have read speaks of the house of mourning. I focus our attention just for a few moments here on verses 2 through 4. That's especially my text. It speaks of the house of mourning there at the beginning of verse 2. The house of mourning can be a home where a loved one has been lost. It can be a hospital, especially in these days. It can be a funeral home or a cemetery or a church auditorium such as this one right now as we think about the subject of death, and in particular these two recent deaths. As we concentrate our attention on those things, it's the house of mourning, we could say, right here today. And these places are called houses of mourning because no matter how godly a person has been, And no matter how certain we might be that he is in glory, and no matter how thankful we might be that Christ has taken him there, especially after some suffering here in this life, even so, it is sad when someone dies, especially when that someone is someone that we love. And this passage tells us that it is better to be here or to be at a funeral home or at a cemetery than it is to be at a party, even though it is a sad place, a very sad place. In fact, the sadness itself, the Bible tells us here, is beneficial to us. Verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Your heart might feel better at a party, but it's not normal that your heart is made better by a party. But it says here that your heart can be made better by the sadness, and in particular, the sadness of the house of mourning. Mourning the loss of of someone, especially if it's someone that you know, especially if someone you know well, and especially if it's someone you even love greatly. And the reason that this sadness is beneficial for us is that we will all one day be laid in the ground ourselves. That's what we're told in the last part of verse 2. It says, when it speaks of the house of mourning, it says, for that is the end of all men. In other words, everyone is going to die someday. 
And it's also a reason why our hearts are made better, not only because we will all die someday, but because we can learn something for our own good, therefore, from being in the house of mourning. That's what the last part of verse 2 says. It is the end of all men, that is, death is. You're going to die someday, as am I. And the living will take it to heart. Some people think we have funerals for the sake of the dead. I grew up in that kind of a background, Roman Catholic. And we thought that funerals were for the benefit of the dead because a bunch of people would get together and pray for them and be reminded to pray for them as time went on. That's not what funerals are for. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray for the dead. The Bible doesn't teach us that people die and go to purgatory. They go to heaven to be with Jesus or they go to hell. And no amount of praying will take someone out of hell and bring him to heaven. No, it says the benefit of being in the house of mourning is that the living will take it to heart. And we who are alive and can hear my words are those living today. May we learn something here from what we hear from the Word of God. And all of this is emphasized by the general rule that Solomon gives us in verse 4. It says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Since you can learn by being in the house of mourning, you're wise if you're drawn there and you go there. Death itself doesn't really draw us. It does repel us. And some people are so repelled by death that they refuse to acknowledge that they can learn something from it and by being in the house of mourning, so they try to stay away from the house of mourning as much as they can. And they try to stay away from thoughts about death as much as they can. And they try to find themselves in parties or party atmospheres as much as they can. And they don't like being anywhere else. That's sad. Solomon says, the heart of the wise, the heart of wise people is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So we can learn some things by being in the house of mourning. Well, what are some of the things that we can learn and should learn today about this subject of death? I'm going to give you five things and perhaps many of you have heard me uh, say some of these things in the past because it's an outline that I've used frequently when I've preached funerals, and it's generally 15-minute messages, but I've just decided to take what I've preached on those occasions and uh, blow it up into a full sermon this morning. So that's what I'm doing. And I have five things that we can learn from being in the house of mourning today. And the first thing is we can learn the certainty of death, the certainty of it. And that is simply that everyone will die. The Bible says that it is the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. That's what death is, the last enemy. And that's a fitting name for it because it's an enemy that everyone faces 
and it will be our enemy till the very end of this life. In fact, if you're not a Christian, it will be your enemy forever. Sadly, the Bible calls eternal destruction in hell the second death. Now, I said that death is certain for everyone because everyone will die. And if you know the Bible, you know that there's a sense in which that's an overstatement. There will be a group of people who will not die. That's true. Turn back to, or turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 13 to 18. This is another, another passage that is commonly read when a Christian has died. It's a very fitting passage. It's about the death of Christians. But it mentions the fact here that not everyone will necessarily die. As I said, there will be a group of people who will not die, and we're told about them in this passage. 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll begin at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Paul is writing here to the Thessalonian Christians, and he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That is, those who have already died and are in their graves. They're Christians, but we don't have to sorrow about them being in their graves while we're alive because when Jesus comes, he's going to bring them. He's going to raise them up out of their graves. There will be a resurrection of the dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So those, those are the group of people who are going to be alive. There will be believers who are alive, and there will be unbelievers who are alive when Jesus comes. And those believers who are alive when Jesus comes will never experience death. Those who are unbelievers and are alive will experience death, called the second death in the Bible. It says in verse 16 then, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So they're at no loss if they're not alive when Christ comes. If you and I happen to be alive when Jesus comes and Gary Simmons is not, he won't be, he's not at a loss. It actually says that he will rise first and go to be with Jesus. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You or I may end up as part of that last group, and we may not. But if not, then we will die. And everyone but this last group of dwellers on this earth are going to die. So that's what I mean when I say we will all die. Everyone will die. Look at Hebrews 9 and verse 27 with me, a very familiar text. It's also frequently read. 
when we come to times like funerals or graveside services. We read in verse 27, and I'll read verse 28 just to get the whole statement here. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. It is appointed for men to die once. It is undeniable that men die. It is unavoidable that we will die, unless, as I said, we're still alive when Christ comes again. But in all likelihood, you are going to die someday. Whether you die or not, you will face Jesus Christ in the judgment. The Bible teaches the certainty of death. But then secondly, the Bible teaches the uncertainty of death. And what I mean by uncertainty is this. It's certain that you will die. But by uncertainty, I mean you don't know just when you will die. Gary lived to be 90 years old. Charles was 27. He was young. The Bible says, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. Deaths like Charles illustrate that. You don't know when you will die. You may be planning for retirement. You may never reach retirement. You may have very good genes and good health like Mr. Simmons had, and he lived to be almost 91 years old. But you have no guarantee that you will live as long as he did. Some of us may not see the end of 2020. It could happen that there are others of us listening to this sermon today who will bury our children. We just don't know. As David said, our times are in God's hand. Isn't this one of the main things, perhaps the main thing, that God is impressing upon us and impressing upon the whole world through this pandemic? The uncertainty of death, when it will come. That you... Whoever you are can die at any time. That life is fleeting. That life is fragile. The Bible says it's like a vapor. It's here one second, it is gone the next. We sang in one of the hymns this morning, Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. You may be someone who's living, hoping that the fountain of life will be found. People don't really look for the fountain of life anymore. But they're looking for it in drugs, ways to live your life, ways to carry out your day-to-day -day living that will prolong your life. 
And scientists, yes, scientists, who in this day and age supposedly are always right, are looking for ways that will prolong life much beyond what we know. But God says, you will die. You may be big and strong and healthy. You may assume you're going to live for a long time, but you might not. God can, if he wants, bring your life to a screeching halt whenever he wants. And he can do it with something as small as a little virus. A little virus that no one has yet figured out, though almost every mind in the world is trying to focus on it. And he can do it with little or no notice to you. That's God's prerogative. And he can do it when it is most inconvenient for you. He can do it when you would least want it to happen. And whoever you are, Christian or non-Christian, when he does, you will be brought face to face with your Maker and with your Judge. You will be brought face to face with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the reality that God wants the world to face right now. This is the reality that he wants you to face right now. I've read many things about coronavirus in the last couple of months. I've read about infection rates, death rates, comparisons to the Spanish flu or the swine flu. I've read about hospitals and ventilators and personal protective equipment. I've read about comorbidities and flattening the curve, about social distancing and mask wearing and shelter-in-place orders, about reopening or not reopening businesses or churches or entire states, about the effects of globalization or, of, I should say, of, of coronavirus on globalization or the economy or the 2020 election. I've read about the dangers of socialism and the encroachment upon our constitutional rights. These are all definitely relevant issues for us at this time. And many of them are very important issues, maybe all of them. But none of them has to do with God's main message to our world to us at this time. His main message is, you are going to die someday. You are going to face him in judgment, and you need to be ready. That is always one of God's main messages when he sends plagues or pestilences, as the Bible calls them. The main question for you then is, is that the message you are taking away from COVID-19? Is that the message you are taking away from the coronavirus and everything that's happening related to it? Or are you all about the politics of coronavirus? Are you focusing on that or the science of it, the medical aspects of it, 
the political implications and the social implications of it rather than the main thing? Are you focusing on those other things when you should be about loving your wife like we've been hearing from Colossians chapter 3 because your day of death is coming. And what, not, what matters is not what you died of, but how you lived. Are you focusing on, if you're a wife, loving your husband and submitting to him like we've been hearing from Colossians 3? Or if you're a child, like we're going to hear from that passage, obeying your parents, that's what you should be focusing on. And as we heard this morning about how you can love your brethren and about how with all these arguments on every different side about what's right and what's wrong about coronavirus, are you focusing on how you can get along, especially with the people that most strongly disagree with you? And on how you can dwell together in peace and harmony, whether it's in your neighborhood or your family or the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, are you focusing on mortifying your sins and making sure that you come out of this crisis more like Jesus Christ then you came into it. And I hope you ask yourself every day whether that's happening in your life or if you're growing more and more embittered to those around you. Like we're told in Colossians chapter 3, husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered toward them. And more embittered to your neighbors or work associates who don't see the coronavirus right or more bitter toward the government because they don't see it right. May God help us, brethren. May God help us. That's the question. Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Is that happening in your life? Because if it is not, you are missing God's message in all of this. So there's the certainty of death and the uncertainty of death. We don't know just when we will be called to meet our Maker. And then thirdly, there's the finality of death. When I was in high school, I read a particular novel... I really enjoyed it then. I would never reread it now. I would never recommend it now. But there was one statement in that novel that made an impact on me. It has stayed with me ever since. And it's this very simple statement. When you're dead, you're dead. And the point was the point I'm making right now. Death is final. It's not the end for people because we're made in the image of God and God has ordained that we will spend eternity either with Him in glory or without Him in hell. At the time I read that novel, I was 17 or, eight, 17 or 18 years old and it made me think because I was very young and I didn't think about death all that much. And I thought, that's true. 
And by that time, I knew enough of the Bible. I believe I was a Christian, but a young Christian and a quite ignorant Christian. So it made me think. And I said that that statement was in accord with reality. And that statement is in accord with the truth of the Bible. When you're dead, you're dead. Think of the case of a young soldier dying in battle on a foreign battlefield. His four-year-old says to his mommy, when daddy comes back, I'm going to learn to ride my bike. The four-year-old doesn't understand, even though he was told that daddy died, that he's not coming back. It's the finality of death. I don't blame the four-year-old. I was in my 40s when my own dad died, and I experienced a similar phenomenon. Well, I was at my mom's house for a week. Throughout that week, there were times when every time someone opened the door, I'd look because I thought, Dad's going to become walking through that door any minute. And he never did. I had to grab myself at one point and tell myself, he's not coming back. Not to this world. As it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. We will come back to this earth with Jesus. We read it in 1 Thessalonians 4. If we're Christians, but we're not coming back to this earth as it is now. We're not coming back to this life. When you're dead, you're dead. Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16 says it this way, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. I remember an old commercial when I was a kid. It was a beer commercial. And it had a, a jingle. I don't know, maybe it wasn't a jingle. I think it was a song that was played. But then they, they said this. You only go around once in life. And that's why you should grab all the gusto you can. In other words, they were saying the most important thing is just to live the happiest life you can while you're here on this earth. Go to parties as much as you can. Drink beer as much as you can. Be happy, laugh, dance, sing as much as you can because you only go around once. And that is not the message of the Bible. That's not what it's trying to get across when it says you only live for a certain period of time and then you die and then you're gone. That's not the message of the Bible. And they didn't mention in that commercial that you can't redeem gusto for anything of lasting value. It's here and it's gone, and you can't buy anything with it. Jesus said, what will, a pro what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange 
for his soul. Have you thought about that? What will it profit you even if you had the exact life you could plan out on this earth and it was all consisting of happiness and nothing else? What will it profit you in the end? Nothing is the answer. The finality of death. And then fourth, we can learn as we are in the house of mourning about the ugliness of death. Death is ugly. Death is ugly in itself. It is unnatural. God did not make people to die. They die because sin came into the world. And sin is not natural. Death is unnatural. And death is a result of sin, as it says in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Death is a curse, the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 3. As I mentioned from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, death is an enemy to people. We're not made to be destroyed. We're made to live. And death is a fearful enemy. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 2, verse 14, that death holds people in a grip of fear throughout their lives. Now we can say Gary Simmons is in a better place. And that's true. He's in a better place than I am. Bless God for that. And yet, death is still our enemy, even as believers. Even though God may turn it into a blessing. It's a blessing for him to be in the bosom of Jesus right now. But even so, it is an unwelcome guest. It is a destroyer of life, which is good. And death, of course, is very ugly for the ungodly. For the ungodly, it is only the beginning of their woes. Jesus once said to the rich, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, he was saying, if you're rich... You're listening to my words. You're enjoying what you've gotten. Whether you've gotten it from honest, hard work, or from lying, cheating, or stealing. You're enjoying it now. But if you don't believe in God, if you don't know God, that's going to be all the consolation you ever get. That's what he meant when he said, you have received your consolation. None is coming after the grave, he's saying, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You may love your riches and what it has bought you. You, you love it more than you love God. In fact, maybe money even is your God. But your money and your things will not last forever. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you have received your consolation. And when those things are gone, they will bring you no comfort. I assure you that in hell, no rich people will be saying, well, this isn't so bad. You know, 
we had so much fun while we were on the earth, it makes all of this bearable. None of them will be saying that. No one in hell will be saying that. Those who are in hell, who had more power than anyone else in the earth, will not be saying that. Those who had more power and more wealth and more fame than anyone on this earth will not be saying anything like that in hell. They will have long forgotten every bit of joy that they ever had in this world. No, Death is ugly, and it is especially ugly for the ungodly. In our society, people don't like to think about death. In all the world, people don't like to think about hell. Frankly, I don't like to think about hell, but we need to think about it. Jesus said a lot about hell. One of the things he said was this. He called hell the place where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And Ecclesiastes 7 is telling us that it is good for us to think about hell, however unthinkable that subject may be. As a man who is a mere man, a mere human being, I don't want to talk about hell. And as a mere man, and as a sinner, and as a coward, there are things in me that make me wish I could stand here and tell you that there is no such place as hell. But as a Christian man, and as a servant of the living God, and as a preacher of His Word, I can't lie to you. The reason Jesus spoke about hell so much is because hell is a real place. And it is a place of unspeakable torment and a place of unending torment. That's what Jesus meant when he said, their worm does not die. Picture a worm eating at someone's flesh, but the flesh never completely disappearing and the worm never being satiated in his hunger and the worm never going away. It's a place where the worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. In America, many people flatter themselves when they think about death. They think that when they die, they will be in heaven just because they've heard about heaven since their youth, maybe. And they believe there is such a place. So they flatter themselves that they will be in heaven. And that all their friends will be too. So they say things like this. When I die and go to heaven, or to their friends, when you're in heaven, without ever asking what it takes to get to heaven, without ever asking if they themselves or their friends believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just assumed by so many people. That's why it's so common to hear those kinds of words. When I get to heaven, which is often followed then by some dumb statement about what they think is going to happen. As a pastor, I know the Bible well enough, and I know people well enough 
to affirm that those people are doing nothing more than flattering themselves when they speak that way and assuming that they're going to be in heaven. Their problem is they don't know what God says about the subject, especially about how to get to heaven. The Bible says that the way to heaven is through a narrow gate. You've got to go through a narrow door, and that's the door of trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And that your sins have to be dealt with either by you in hell. They're not dealt with by you, by your being a good person. Be a good person. Everyone you know will be happier for that. But being a good person won't get you to heaven. You can't be good enough. Your sins will either be dealt by you in hell or by Jesus Christ on the cross. The way through to heaven is through a narrow gate of trusting in him alone to save you, not trusting in yourself to save yourself. And it's also, the Bible says, the, the way to heaven is along a narrow path. It says there's a broad road that leads to hell, and most people are on it, but there's a narrow path that leads to heaven. And that's the path of repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ and walking in this world with a clear conscience. That's the Christian life. That's the path to heaven. Not that you earn heaven by those things, but that's the path you walk. That is, when you sin, you confess it to God. You ask forgiveness of your sins, and you turn away from those sins, and you do right. You seek the help of God, His Holy Spirit, to do what God wants you to do. That's why I say people flatter themselves when they say, when I get to heaven. Because most people haven't gone through that narrow gate, and they aren't walking on that narrow path. If you haven't gone through that gate and you aren't walking on that path, you need to prepare yourself to die. Why? Because death is certain. And because death is uncertain, you know it's going to come, but you don't know when it's going to come. And it could come any time. And death is final. There is no second chance. There are no do-overs. You can't go around more than once. Even the beer commercial had it right. No do-overs. If you are not right with God, I urge you today to repent of your sins. Acknowledge to God that you are a sinner. You've broken His law at point after point after point, and ask God for his forgiveness of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. And do it today. If Gary and Charles were here today, and remember, they now see these things clearer than any of us they would say, listen to what this man is saying. I hope you will listen. And listen with all of your soul. So death is certain. 
Death is uncertain. Death is final. Death is ugly. The fifth thing I want us to consider, however, is the blessedness of death for the Christian. The blessedness of death for the Christian. And I'll just mention two reasons why death is blessed for the Christian. First of all, because the sting of death is removed for the Christian. The text is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. Death is blessed for the Christian because the sting of death is removed. That's what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 54. Paul writes, For when this corruptible, that is my present earthly body, has put on incorruption, that is, his resurrection body, which can't die or even grow old and decay, when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Bible is saying here that death is not ultimately painful for believers. It's not saying that no believers suffer painful deaths. But the point is this, that the real pain of death comes after the last breath in this life for an unbeliever, but not for the Christian. I've used probably before in this pulpit the illustration of, the, regarding the sting of death, the illustration of a Nerf ball. Imagine that there was a major league pitcher who can throw the, the ball somewhere between 95 and 100 miles an hour, and he's got a, a baseball in his hand. And he winds up, and you're about 20 feet away from him. And he winds up, and he throws his fastball, and he throws it right at you. Imagine that fastball coming at you, you don't have time to get out of, out of the way of it if you're 20 feet away from him when he lets go of that thing. And so you just cringe and try to hope he hits you in the crease of the elbow or something like that. But you're, you're waiting for the worst to happen. But then it hits you, and it turns out it was a Nerf baseball. And you don't feel a thing. And that's what death is like for a Christian, and in particular for a Christian who is very fearful about going through the deep waters of death. It seems like it's going to be terrible, but it's not. Because for the Christian, the end result of his death is the reuniting 
of his body and his soul, but with a far better body. And it's eternal joy in the presence of God rather than eternal separation from God. And that's the gospel in a sense. You could put it in those terms. The gospel is that Christ takes the sting of death on himself in place of his people so they don't have to take it. Ever. So death is a blessed thing for a Christian because the sting of it is removed. And then secondly, death is made an instrument for good for the Christian. Philippians 1, verses 21 to 23. Familiar words of the Apostle Paul. Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. In other words, he wants to live, but there's a sense in which he wants to die. Why would he think that way? He says, I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now he says in verse 24, he says he's content to remain in the, Bible, in, the, in the body because that's more needful for the people of God that he ministers to. So he's content with that. But the point is, he's not afraid of death because however he dies, and Christian tradition has it that Paul died suffering persecution, having his head lopped off by the Romans. But he knew that even if he had his head lopped off by the Romans, or even if he suffered through some kind of torturous death, that death would be made an instrument for good in his case. Because Scripture says here and, other, and in other places that at death, a believer is taken to be with Jesus in heaven. For every believer, his death is a door. It's a door into the most beautiful and delightful place he has ever been and could ever even imagine. We go from this veil of tears to heavenly glory through the door of death. Here is why you must trust in Jesus, because there is no other way to know blessedness in death. No other way than through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know blessedness in death and even in life. Paul could say while he was living that he wasn't afraid of death. He could talk about death and face death without fear. As far as we understand, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was in prison, and it may well have been the, prison, the, 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 the imprisonment that led up to his execution. But we read him writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about his coming death, where he says, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. And he writes about his death, it sounds like with anticipation, not with cringing and trembling. He says, For am I, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, he doesn't mean release from prison, 
He means departure from this world through his execution, his death. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love the appearing of Jesus? Do you like to love to think about it? Especially in the midst of times like the coronavirus? I do. You don't need to be afraid of the day you will die, even if it's much sooner than you think it would be. And you don't need to be afraid of the manner of your death, even if it comes in the way that right now you frankly would dread. You don't need to be afraid, Christian. Can you imagine that? Unbelievers who are listening to me, can you imagine thinking about death like that with such triumph as the Apostle Paul did? For most people in this world, at best, death is something that is inevitable, unavoidable, but it's not pleasant. At worst, and it's this way for many, many people, it is something that they terribly fear. It is possible to legitimately have no fear of death like the Apostle Paul, even to anticipate the day of his death. But that is only truly possible in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could speak as he did, because he knew Jesus Christ. And I urge you once again to believe in him today. The Bible calls you to do that without any advanced preparation. Even if you had no thoughts of that before this day, I urge you to do it today. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in him today. Well, the Bible teaches us that death is certain, it is uncertain, it is final, and it is ugly, but also that it is a blessed thing for everyone who believes in Jesus. May God, who has brought us to the house of mourning today, cause us the living to take his word to heart. And may he prepare each one of us for the end of our earthly pilgrimage, whether it comes this year or whether it comes 50 years from now. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, sobering as it is. We even do thank you, Father, for your wise and good providence in bringing this pandemic into this world. We don't like the pandemic. We don't like death. It's our enemy. We don't like all the grief and the sorrow and the pain that it's causing all throughout this earth. But we do thank you for your message. And we ask that by your Spirit, this very day, through the preaching of your Word, all throughout this world, you would bring eternal realities 
to the minds and hearts and the souls of many, many people that you will bring these truths that we've heard today home to the hearts of many people by the work of your Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.